are in the Grotto Pod where my Uh-oh. phone is off and we are here. Uh, by we, I mean... Mine's off too. Bridget Quinn, author. Uh, me, Larry Rosen. Soon to be joined by our guest, Caroline Paul. Yay! Grotto legend. Oh yeah, for sure. I don't know. SF legend, maybe. Huh? Just legend, but definitely within these hallowed walls, she is something of a legend. I'm going to play because a little... Because she's so cool. Because she's in so my opinion. cool. I'm going to play a little Tetris over here while okay. you talk, because I've got to move some stuff around. Why not do, okay. it, on, why not do it on Well, mic? can I just say, first of all, that Caroline has a book coming out. How many books has she written? Like five or six? Wow, you know what was that noise? Uh, that was me throwing something on the ground. I'll tell okay. you how many books she's written. It's a lot. It depends on if you count the tea book that comes out in October, which I did not know about. Uh, what she, does tea book mean? She wrote a book. There's a book coming out in October called The Little Tea Book. Oh, tea. Like drinking tea? You bet. Or smoking tea. Uh, <laughs> okay, Paul Simon, circa 1967. Uh, she wrote it with tea guru, Sebastian Beckwith. Oh, fantastic. No, I'm not counting that. Okay. I just want to talk about her new book, which is coming out right now, You Are Mighty, A Guide to Changing the World. I am interested in so many things about Caroline yeah. because I feel like... Uh, well, I, you know, we know her. She's been around. But she's, uh, you know, she's an OG here in the old grotto. Oh, yeah. And um, and she's also, for someone whose Wikipedia page is huge. <laughs> That's because so, she's done so much. And for someone who's been interviewed by Tim Ferriss twice mm-hmm. and done TED Talks and yep. all these crazy things. And, that, like, flown one of those planes that doesn't have an engine. What are those called? <laughs> <laughs> an ultralight. Yes, she's an ultralight pilot. An experimental ultralight pilot. But for all that, she is remarkably accessible. Yeah, oh, yeah. She's a totally down-to-earth person. You know, um, She'll let it all hang out. Yeah. She will, which surprises me. I think I told you before, like, during my grotto vetting, in which I arrived sweaty carrying a, a giant falafel. You almost said burrito, right? I almost did say burrito. Well, understandably. Roundish, cylindrical. Cylindrical. Large 2,000-calorie food item. Yeah. Uh, I found her intimidating. When you met her. Oh, totally. That well, she's room so of people, nice. It took me a while to know that because she is a very certain, very sh- seemingly yeah. sure of herself person. Well, and she is. Oh, my God. Just her very first – Can we? are we going to talk about her first job? Well, this is her whole, her whole thing is like, – Where do we start talking about Caroline? I don't, I don't know because – well, let me just start by going down her – let's okay. start with her books. All right. I'm just leaning in and listening. And her first book was Fight, Fighting Fire, uh, published in 1998. <gasps> so that's good. a memoir that we're going to really – I want to – My not, daughter I hope, loves that book. I hope that's not like old news to her because I want to hear about it. She she, oh, no. How could upon it be? graduating from Stanford. I know, from Stanford. As one does. Uh, she was going to go the uh, documentary filmmaker route. Which would have been cool. Which would have been cool. But in, in one of her uh, stories, she was going to expose the ra- uh, sexism of the SFFD, fire department, San Francisco Fire Department, by applying for a job. Mm-hmm. Well, she got the job. Thirteen and a half years later, here comes a memoir. And well, thirteen and a half years later, she was uh, she was a firefighter all that time. That's Did she what I'm write saying. the memoir while she was a firefighter? I don't think so. That is a good question. I don't think. But she let did. me just say she that was one of the first female yeah. SFFD firefighters. And actually, um, I'm, we've never been able to be sure. But my son, when he was about three months old, was choking, mm-hmm. and I called nine one one, his baby, and a group of entirely female firefighters came to the door, oh, saved really? his life. You think she was one of them? And I've always wondered if she was one of them. We're not clear. Yeah, I don't know if the dates line up because that was published in 98 and your son would have been three months old in 98, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, well, we'll, we won't find out. We won't know. Uh, her second book, and then she goes for a novel. And not just a novel. And it's a really, that's a historic a, novel. And a literary and Yeah, really a literary good. historic novel called East Wind Rain, 2006, uh, set in 1941. On a remote, Hawaii. a remote Hawaiian island that mm-hmm. I spent about a half an hour Googling last night because it still exists. Yeah. It's owned by this family. Right. I've heard about this. And it's got like 70 residents. It's funny though. I read um, – uh, well, I don't know if it's funny. That's just me you know, yeah. editorializing. Yeah. But I read a New York Times story about the island and the people who live there insist that, well, we leave like every day. We go to Safeway in Kauai. But we oh. can't go there. So they live in this island paradise. They get to come and go. Oh, but, but you can't. We come can't and go. go. Yeah. Right. Uh, next, it. after that, I believe that's her only novel. It is her only novel because then she shifts gears again and writes "Lost Cat," a true story of love, desperation, and GPS technology. Fun fact. Yes, I have read "Lost Cat" in English and in Norwegian. Interesting. Yes. Which way is it more lyrical? Uh, <laughs> 
interestingly enough, it is quite funny in Norwegian. Is it? Yeah, and also the but but the title I feel like in Norwegian implies I could be wrong. I am not a native speaker, but the translation of the title in Norwegian implies to me that she lost misplaced the cat. Didn't she misplace the cat? <laughs> well, I guess so. Because when I hear lost cat, it sounds different to me. Though. I don't think the cat was actually lost. It sounds like the cat. No, the cat knew holiday. where he was going. <laughs> yeah. That's um, a really good story. So it's about when she lost her cat. Yeah. And cat comes home. Cat comes home. Did they have the cat was they, chipped? They put GPS on the cat to and see where the cat goes. Where in the did world. the cat go? And, oh my god! What did so the cat do for five yeah. weeks? Uh, and then she uh, nothing for three years. And last and in 2016, she comes out with the Gutsy Girl, which I think. That was a huge book. A little bit of a career shift, maybe. You know, because yeah. it's 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 because a younger you younger mean? audience. Yeah, uh, Lost yeah I Cat. think that's like middle grade or yeah. YA maybe. Lost yeah. Cat was the first. I mean, yeah, Lost Cat was illustrated by Wendy McNaughton, her right. partner. Yeah, she continues that with Gutsy Girl and her new book. You are. Mighty, but that is not illustrated by Wendy. It isn't. Nope. Ah, I thought it was. Nope. Uh, also aimed at young audiences. Yeah, I, actually, it's kind of activism for middle school kids, which is very cool. Right, right. And uh, for those of you out there in the beautiful, unsullied city of San Francisco, uh, there will be a book launch. Oh yeah, it's May nineteenth. There will the be bindery. pizza. There will be pizza. Uh, this you, if you're listening, just the day it drops, and you better be. Yeah. Loyal listeners. Yeah. Uh, it will be May 19th. So May just 19th, a few days. I believe at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock. I think. Uh, kids which, can come. Which is a good time. Pizza. Yep. And then there's going to be pizza. I mean, I'm definitely going to be there. My daughter's uh-huh. going to be there. She's 16, a little old, but um, she's pretty interested in, well, she's just interested in Caroline. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. She said You said she was an inspiration for it. Yeah, because um, my daughter wants to be a firefighter. Oh, at SF. Yeah. Or Toronto. Or Toronto, correct. Uh, and then, Grotto Pod listeners, if you're all fired up after that, don't forget three days after that, May 22nd, we will be oh, at the yes. SF Public Library at 6 p.m. interviewing oh Grotto Pod favorite Vanessa Waugh about Who? her favorite book. You guys, you have to come because I think it's going to be a little bit of a jaw dropper for folks. I think so. Uh, we were discussing snacks, but there won't be snacks. I'm sorry. Are you sure? I will not bring snacks. All right. Well, it's not a snacks type of environment. I went there the other day. The room is huge. Yeah, that's all the more reason to have snacks. I I, think I offered donuts. Larry said it was too late. No, for no, donuts. no. Donuts are only for before noon projects. Clearly, you have not been dipping into the tea. No, afternoon is pizza. After okay. that is ice cream. Well, yeah, ice cream. If you possible. say, "Hey, can you help me move?" My response is, "What time?" Oh, because then you say, know what you're going to get. It's nine, and then I say, "Will there be donuts?" Okay. Uh-huh. If you say, will you help me move? I say, what time? You say, uh, about two in the afternoon. I say, oh, will there be pizza? You don't say, will there be beer? To move? Oh, no, my gosh. I, I feel so. like I was raised wrong. I don't think so. Perhaps. But that's neither here nor there. What is here is Her that Caroline. Caroline Paul is waiting to enter the Grotto Pod, reconstructed, as always, on a weekly basis for your enjoyment. <laughs> so let's just go get her. Hooray. I'm excited. Welcome to the Grotto Pod. I'm so excited. I'm such a fan. <laughs> you guys know that. I know, and it's, it's really so satisfying. Totally satisfying because you are Grotto OG. Yeah. So, look, you know what? We have so much to talk about, but since you brought in the new book, let's start there. Yes. Because I have a few questions and a few observations gleaned during the 90 seconds I just spent with it. Um, <laughs> first of all, during the intro, I said erroneously that Wendy had illustrated. How come she didn't? She did illustrate the last two books. Right, Gutsy Girl and the Cat book. Yeah, but this time, this book is about kids and social justice and mm-hmm. activism. And it didn't seem right that two privileged white mm. people, oh. you know, do this whole book. I mean, there'd be a ton of blind spots. Um, and it, that would just come from a place of, that just didn't ring true. So I have this great new illustrator called Lauren Tamaki, mm-hmm. who is, um, she's young and she's uh, she's actually Canadian. She's uh, Canadian Japanese, and she comes from uh, from illustration uh, high uh, pedigree because her cousin is Jillian Tamaki, and she's she's amazing. I got uh, Lauren right before she she's about to become she blows up. She's going to blow up. Maybe you're going to help her blow up. So you had said you thought there'd be some blind spots. So how did she fill in those blind spots? Um, I think because she's young and as an illustrator, I give – she's – she, mm. 
you know, she had input. Most of it was my direction, which is not what happens with Wendy. Wendy definitely does her own work. Mm -hmm. And then I get to have a little bit of a say. (laughs) Would it be okay if... Yeah. (laughs) I did some things in Gutsy Girl. I did do the flow chart. Mm -hmm. And then she illustrated it, just simply made it better. (laughs) Which is nice. Yeah. And since she is your life partner, how did you separate the work from home? We both work outside the house. But if you're working on the same project, I mean. I did not realize she worked outside the house. That that explains a lot. For a while, she didn't, and it was problematic because she's yeah. such a hard worker. So yeah. I'd come home, I'd be like, the day is over, the work day is over, and yeah, the yeah. fun is beginning. And she'd, she'd call upstairs, I'm still working. And yeah, there'd be no... I have this problem. To be a, mm-hmm. I think that's really healthy. I think that happens even to some spouses who work outside the house. I may be speaking from experience. I'm just saying maybe last night my wife was on the couch while I was watching TV. I think that in America, we, especially right now, it's hard to know when work ends. Yeah. So I think that's really healthy to hear. Did you find... It's the equivalent of not having your TV in your bedroom. Exactly. Or not having your TV anywhere. Yeah, really. Except maybe your den. Exactly. (laughs) When did you guys notice the insidiousness of that model? I remember I went to see a friend who worked at Microsoft in the 90s. And he's like, isn't this great? Look at this cafeteria. Look at this. You know, we can get our dry cleaning done. I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. Don't go home. Stay here. We'll, oh, we'll that's been going you. on forever, I feel yeah, like. Yeah. But it's supposed to be the new work model. Like, oh, it's so great. You know, everything's taken care of. Yeah, I've heard that, like, most of the new sort of tech inventions are all about trying to keep people away from each other. What do you mean? Well, that, you know, here, don't go and get your coffee. Oh, have got it, it. Deli- you right. know, have right. it delivered here or have your pizza delivered so you don't have the hassle of interacting with people. <laughs> I have to say that's one of the things that I value most about the grotto is leaving my down, you know, basement office and being out in the world for a little while, not just with other writers, but with people of San Francisco, <laughs> then coming in here and, and interacting with other people. I, it's, it makes me a whole human being. Oh, well, you got, I know you've heard me say this, but there is no way I would have written, you know, the six books if right. I had not. Five, five, because I wrote Fighting Fire before I was a grotto member. Oh, we were but. wondering about that. And also Gutsy Girl came about as uh, a lunchtime conversation, right? Yeah, yes, actually. Diana Cap, grottoite. Mm-hmm. Yes. Badass of her own. Yes, totally. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is sort of uh, archetypal of the grotto. I was at a reading, and it was Grotto People reading, and it was an, uh, reading your outdoor misadventures, and Diana Cap was there. Right. I was there. And you were there. Yeah. Okay, good. No, I mean, just listening. <laughs> and then the next day at lunch, she said, you know, Caroline, um, you should write about your adventures because girls need to hear them. And that's all I needed. I, there was an open spot in my writing life. I'd finished Lost Cat. I mm-hmm. didn't know what I was going to do next. And so I thought, I'll try that. When she told you that, did she suggest the audience or did she just say girls? Because you hadn't really written for a younger audience before. I hadn't actually. And that was interesting. I never thought I would. But Lost Cat, even though it was written for adults, right. a lot of kids really liked it. I know. My my kids liked it. Yeah. Bridget read it in two languages, by the way. I read it in two languages. You did? I did. It was fun. Norwegian? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. And just so you know, it made such a great gift. Thanks. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> I brought it with me when I went to Norway last fall. I had I had four or five copies. <laughs> now I know what to do with my copies of Gutsy Girl in Norwegian. Oh, excellent. But since you hadn't written for that audience uh, specifically... How, do, how does one change their frame of mind? Again, the 90 seconds I just spent with You Are Mighty, it has a very specific type of voice that I think is very effective for that age group. You're not talking down to them, but you're also not muddling things. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's funny. I don't consider myself funny in real life. Mm-hmm. Like, I consider myself actually really serious. Huh. And, I'll and, buy that. And I'm a, I'm a sort of a, seri- and a serious leaning towards dark person. But and rye. I would call you rye. Really? Thank yeah. You. You're welcome. Well, I find – I actually think I'm funny when I write. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, thank you, and I want you to tell Wendy that. <laughs> okay, I will. <laughs> Wendy's Wendy. actually legitimately funny in real life. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But too. I am. I'm just serious. And so my writing um, – I found my funny voice because when I wrote The Gutsy Girl, which is basically about my misadventures and sort of stupid mistakes. It'd be hard to write – real intensely about crawling, but maybe not. Right. Oh, yeah. For those in podcast world, I <laughs> attempted to set a world record. 
And because I had no skills, I decided that I would pick a world record that demanded no talent. One of the wacky ones. No, I went for super serious, super basic, and I, you know, I tried wacky. I thought you of wacky. You tried, like, the fingernail growing or... No, more like the kind of weird, like, juggle on black ice holding cake or something. Oh, and, you know, they, they, they see through that one. stuff. Yeah. Plus, I don't know if I could have done it. Um, because that's like... So then, I, so I picked crawling. How far did you crawl? Well, the record far. was 12 and a half miles. And, yeah, that seemed... So easy. I'd never even wa- walked, you know, well, that's six like miles. It was a ridiculous. Marathon, practically. Yeah. What are the what? Are, what? Where <laughs> does that hurt your body? Because at some point, I mean, your knees just chewed up, and and your shoulders thrash. Yeah, you were like a teenager, remember. right? Yeah, I was. I was fourteen. But uh, I suffice it to say that I failed at it, and I went eight and a half miles. Oh my god, it's amazing. Anyway, that story is in the Gutsy Girl, and it's. Mm-hmm. Supposed to be um, sort of a parable, not about ridiculousness, but about how failure is actually rewarding because it is a it is actually quite a feat to go eight and a half miles just because I didn't get the world record. Well, you know, but you got a book out of it. it. And yes, yes, I get a book out of a lot of my failures. I do think it's worth saying that um, I think it was Nora Ephron who said this, that it's all copy. Or her parents told her that, I think, about every every bad thing that happens to you or every challenging thing or depressing or disappointing thing. It can just be copy later. I help. I find that helpful. Yeah. I, I hope people don't think that when I'm around them. But it turns out that I have of the um, many – the books that I've written, which are now – I think there's one coming out in, in November. The tea book. It's just on tea. So yeah. that's not about me. Yay. Mm-hmm. But I have written uh, – what is it? Four out of the six books have been memoir. Yeah, right, which which may if you don't to some degree. meet me, that makes me sound. I know self absorbed. I don't, but think you don't seem self-absorbed. that way at all. Well, also those are all memoir in service of another topic and another thing. Mm-hmm. And actually, one one of the things that all of those have in common, all of your books, is engagement with the world, whether it's fighting fires or doing things in the world that are gutsy or activism. Maybe finding a cat. That that one I'm not sure about. That was actually about relationships. True. Okay. There you go. Yeah, I don't think any of your memoirs have really been the here's a crazy thing that happened to me sort. It's more about the lessons learned from the crazy things that happened to people. Yeah, Lost Cat is an interesting um, – you know, I had – uh, been I'd written Fighting Fire, which is a memoir about being a firefighter, and then I wrote a novel, which was so hard. And I my hats are off to right. anybody. Is that it for you? Your only novel, you think? Well, I've written more, mm-hmm. but they have been rejected. You're mm-hmm. no Jonathan Evison. You're not just going to keep going. <laughs> I don't know how he did it. Frankly, I don't either. Like, well, you know, he ritually set fire to them at one point to move forward from them. Wow. Yeah, but he wrote them. So right. I had actually written. Uh, Fighting Fire, and then East Wind Rain, and gotten them published fairly quickly. So when people t- ask me about my writing story, I sort of loathe to tell them because I think I've just been mm-hmm. super lucky. Mm-hmm. And I also have a um, sort of uh, sense of myself, and I know that my – you know, there's just so many great writers in the world. Right. So the way I approach my writing is to just find that niche that nobody else has. It's very similar to crawling. Like I don't have a crawling <laughs> – I don't have a talent in crawling. crawling. So therefore – I'm sorry. I don't but have a talent for world records. So I pick in a sort of a, a, a – and it was the same reason that I became a loser. Right. Is oh, that's right. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Luging. Well, it just it sounds like, funny. I don't want to get no, too far little... away from writing, but let me just <laughs> right. say that it's, no, it's all, all related. Follows, is it? No, uh-huh. I think it's it's all part of the same theme, and I, I do want to make sure we get to this theme, and that is the theme of I don't want to say facing your fears because I don't know what your fears are, but this idea of being open to tackling any challenge, taking on challenges. You do seem like kind of person to me. Yeah, but that's not the, the lesson I take from my life is more that like I just simply find the niche not many people occupy. Because I do realize that there are so many talented people in the world. Correct. And I, you see it here at the Grotto, Correct. amazing right. writers. And that my talent is really doggedness. Mm-hmm. And Ooh, so I like it. if I find my niche, which I did in Luge, I mean, nobody had done that sport. And I really wanted to go to the Olympics and nobody had heard of it at the time. This is the 80s. Wait, nobody had heard of it? Come Very. Oh, my. 
Wow. I, I was a Olympics junkie, so I, I had 84? Had you heard of... Oh, yeah. maybe not. I feel like right around there, maybe it came... Maybe it was I'd say I'm a loser. People say, don't, don't no, talk about yourself. No, so you're that's sad. Sure. Well, can you give us the little that, synopsis, the loser synopsis? Well, I just wanted to go to the Olympics, and I, don't, and I, I, had a, I was a rower in college. That's what the hoped, sport was. Hoped to go that route, but... You know, I just wasn't good enough. It's a, it was a sport that fit me because you had to just simply be dogged. Mm-hmm. But I just wasn't good enough, so I had to find a sport where less people were in it. So I had a better chance. And so it just so happened that in college there happened to be the Olympic, an Olympic loser who went there. Mm-hmm. And she decided, you know, at the time everybody who lose simply lived in Lake Placid, right. which is where exactly. the only track was. Mm-hmm. So you just simply, all the Olympic team was made up of, the townspeople of Lake Placid, the kids. So Bonnie awesome. Warner, who had placed the highest yet uh, as an American in the in the luge, uh, the, the the year previously in '84, decided I'm going to expand this sport. So she offered this sort of luge camp on the West Coast, and so I saw this flyer, and I, a friend and I, went and did the tryouts, and we qualified and were sponsored to go to Lake Placid for a couple of weeks, and I simply. Thought this is my chance. There's hardly anybody that does this sport. I see, you know, there's right. twelve people here in the whole United States, women doing this. I'm staying. So I took a semester off from Stanford and I stayed. But Lucia's terrifying. I mean, people die. And when you see the camera, like now they have those cameras where they follow the losers, it is terrifying to watch. So the first time you get on a luge and you go down, just how how is how is that? It's like sledding. Yeah, I would say from what, I've, from what I've read about <laughs> you growing up, it's probably not the first time oh, you were yeah. barreling down something at speed. Right. Also, I wasn't good at it. Let's be honest. I mean, you know my my nickname was? No, I don't know. Cannonball? Come on, tell me. Yeah, I wish. That would have been good. <laughs> At least a cannonball is a trajectory. Snowplow? <laughs> Crash. Oh, oh, no, that's not No good. nuance at all. That's yeah. not even funny. Oh, my goodness. So uh, were you flying yet? Is this pre-flying? Yeah, I flew. No, no. I, lo- I started flying um, planes when I was 18. Okay. So this Cessnas. is this is this the is a thing. theme that's emerging. Right. So this is why Larry and I feel that you... Our person, maybe Why not wrote, without fear. What did I write right there? Adventurer. Adventurer, for sure. Because not only do you fly, and um, your novel is about a plane crash, right? Yeah, that was sort of, I was, that was a little bit serendipitous, but yes, it starts with a plane crash. The and novel. you had a plane crash. Yes, after that. Yeah, and you still fly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. So there's so, a couple things coming up here. Yeah. And one is is the story about you wanting to be an Olympic rower and realizing, oh, I can't do it. Your response is to find a new sport. Now, mm-hmm. I would say a majority of people's response would be, eh, I gave it a shot, but I guess I'm not going to the Olympics. So that stands out to me. And also the fact you crash a plane, get back up in a plane. <laughs> well, that wasn't so fast. I mean, I did yeah. crash. Yeah. I had a very bad accident in my terrible. ultralight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, were you here at the grotto? When I, was I think so. Or maybe it was right. Maybe I heard the stories right. It had happened yeah, shortly it after. Bad. And I, it was bad on so many levels. I, I, for anybody who's had a bad accident, you know, I was pretty immobile for six months, and I was really not um, a sentient being for about a year. Ye- after about a year, I was sort of nor- sort of normal. But um, wow. there's there's so many things that go along with having accidents, like depression. Mm-hmm. And, totally, and you're life changing so much. But I so I did not. I wanted to fly. I mean, I had been flying since I was 18. I flew Cessnas, I flew paragliders, and now I was flying ultralights, supposedly because they were <laughs> safer. Mm. And I had this bad accident, total pilot error, and um, so wanted to get back on it and flew after about a year and a half. Started flying again, and then just wasn't. It wasn't fun and realized, oh, okay, this sort of irritation you're feeling when you're flying, that's called fear. And this is the way you're expressing <laughs> oh, it. Oh, And um, you're not having fun. And so I went and I thought, well, if I'm not having fun, I'm not going to fly. So yeah. I decided. Right. But I, I decided I'll give it one more shot. I'll go get hypnotized. So I went and I got hypnotized and she gave me this sort of little hocus pocus to do before every flight and um and now i fly again and i'm so Back happy and i'm a bit i'm sort of i have so much fun flying and i'm not That's huge i do not fly in rough air i do not think of myself as like back then i was like i can handle anything and i don't mm-hmm. i don't 
that anymore. Not to be too obvious, but don't you think there are sort of object lessons for the writing life in all of these examples, right? I mean, the courage to take up the work is real. It doesn't sound like it requires courage, but I find that it does. Oh, I mean, you know, I actually made this um, comparison when I rewrote Fighting Fire, which was my memoir Mm -hmm. about being a firefighter. We'll get to that. Don't worry. Okay. Well, I re-edited it, you know, because the the technology was available and that was my first book. Mm -hmm. And I really am not a natural writer. And I had and I had had a great editor. So I was proud of that book, but I felt like I could make it better. And um, so I rewrote it. And in the in the foreword, I talk about how, you know, everyone thinks being a firefighter is is takes bravery. And it does. You have to face yourself because, mm-hmm. you know, you you will you run into that fire? That's the question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you uh, you answer it. Every time there's a fire, whereas right. most people are like, yeah, I'd, I'd just totally run into it. But you're not actually right. having to answer it. Right. And I think it's the same with writing. You have to look at yourself. You have to look deep in yourself, you know, pretty much every day. And you have to say, I'm going to I'm going to am I going to do this? I'm going to do this. And it, and it requires a sort of a courage and a vulnerability. Agreed. And in both of those situations, is that a conscious thought process you, you went through? Or was it just something you realized later you were going through? When you sit down to write every day, are you actually thinking, all right, this takes courage to do this today? Or is it now when we're kind of assessing the whole idea that you think about it? And same with running into a burning building. Did you have to wake up every day and go, all right, I have to run into a burning building today. Do I have what it takes? I mean, I think on, on some level that, that quite you're always asking yourself that. But I think with writing, it's all, you're asking yourself that on a more obvious level because you face that page mm-hmm. and – you feel those feelings and there's this there's all this possible waiting time mm-hmm. before you start typing and uh. I, whereas fighting a fire that that is not an option you just go that's an, right. the adrenaline. alarm goes yeah. and you're training and you go and you know i loved fire and you have other people Right. Yeah. You, they're depending on you. Right. And you're a woman also, and they're wondering whether you can do it. So. Right. You're going to do it. You're going <laughs> to run in. If you haven't read Caroline's memoir, Fighting Fire, I really highly recommend it because it was the first time I really understood what firefighters do. And it was terrifying. It was really terrifying. Yeah, because it was before Rescue Me was on TV. Yeah. Which it was before all that. And, I mean, the book takes place before 9-11. And even though you know what happened in 9-11 – to be on, uh, mm. in the consciousness of someone as they are experiencing things. It's the one where you were under the train. That's the one that just, mm. man, the... Well, let's, let's go back to then because I think that's a story worth telling is how you came about. You know, we, encaps- we gave the Little Reader's Digest version of how you came about writing that book. But why don't you give us the more... Uh, authorial? Detailed and authorial. Mm. Version. I don't want to go over anything you guys have gone over already. It was very quick. It was oh. very quick. We said you documentary wanted to be a documentary filmmaker. Became a firefighter. Oh, that is quick. Yeah. Well, no. I also said <laughs> you were going to expose practices of the of SFFD or whether it was sexist and racist. You went. I'm like, hey, I think I'll go for this firefighting thing. Yeah, I was working at KPFA at the right. time because I was trying to. I was, you know, I didn't know that I was going to be a writer. But I was – I did want to live this life of adventure and had grown up with this guy named Dave Brashears. Do you mm-hmm. know him? He's a climber. Mm-hmm. Now there's a lot of examples of this. But at the time, there was like Ned Gillette, Dave Brashears, no real uh, women, but who basically merged their adventure life with a do- sort of a documentary mm-hmm. life. So they would either write about it or in the case of Dave Brashears, he would film it. And he lugged this huge equipment up Everest, and I was like, I want that life. Like again, it's a sort of a niche thing. Like I'm not, I wouldn't necessarily be the best filmmaker, but I'd know how to right. raft that river, or I'd know how to fly that plane. So you, so then I could. So cool. So I thought that storytelling, uh, and again, we didn't really use that word back then, but some sort of documentary um, avocation would work. And so I, w- I studied film. And, uh, you know, film just takes a lot of people, say it's a, money, it's a very collaborative. Money. No, that's I'm not against just... collaboration, but I'm super reliable. And I right. get – if it's with writing, it's just you I and agree. your pencil. And if, if it doesn't happen, you know whose fault it is? Yours. Ugh, that's the worst part and the best part. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you can take responsibility. You can, you can feel yeah. more in control. So yeah. film sort of fell by the wayside. And even though I did go to grad school – uh, for a for a little bit um, in film, and then 
became a firefighter, so I left. But in between, I was working at KPFA, working in radio, and uh, saw these stories that come across my desk about the racist, sexist fire department, mm-hmm. 1986, 87. And I thought I could get an undercover story. And so I thought I'll disguise myself as a firefighter hopeful, whatever that is. I just went and took the test, basically. And I and there's 5,000 people. Oh, my test. gosh. Another story I don't like to tell people is sort of like my writing. Right. I, mean, I have had failures along the way, so please do not be. But I was blessed initially uh, in writing and in firefighting mm-hmm. because so many people wanted that job. And I just happened to test really well. Um, wait, wait, wait. You didn't happen to test really well. You tested really well. Yeah. I tested well. Because, you know, I had gone, I'd taken a lot of tests in my life. Exactly. And uh, I mean, you've been an academic where, because you've gone to Stanford, you had had a certain kind of training that maybe people, many people who are taking that test have not had. Right. They're just as smart. It was just like I understood the testing. And so, so I got in, you know, and it was under, uh, and so I went through the whole process. And of course, you know, racism and sexism does not show up. In a like five hour testing period, it just so you had to keep going. So I kept going through the process to get this story, and you know, racism and sexism just is way more insidious than oh, it's, right. you know, right. of in course, like face, I am dumb and young right. and privileged and thought I was just going to see it, and right. you know, institutionalism is subtle and that's where its power is, mm-hmm. and so at any rate, no story, but I got in and thought by then, like, oh, this is actually what I've been looking for. Mm, this is the incredible adventure life that right. I will get paid for, and it is really the most, it was, it changed my life, and I'm just so grateful, and it made me such a better person. It's amazing. But is firefighting something you age out of? Is that why you left? Did you feel after 13 years, like, you know, I'm losing a step, or... You know, I just not cut out for this anymore. You know, I actually got pretty injured. <laughs> Surprise. Mm. Yeah. I fell. I was at a very, very busy station. I was on something called the rescue squad, and we were responsible. We went to all the half the fires in the city. There were two rescue squads. We were a very specialized unit. We were, we were trained to do special rescues like crawling under a train. If that someone's that hit, story. Oh. And crawled under a couple trains and. You know, we we got uh, we dove for bodies. I was on the scuba diving team. We surf rescued. We rappelled off bridges to to pick people off, which I actually never did and always wanted. <laughs> um, but so it was a it was definitely you, we just did a lot. Had and so, but it was in a fire and I fell and I hurt my knee very badly and I ignored it. And mistake. so that was my mistake, yeah. mm-hmm. is I waited to have surgery for a year because I didn't want to be the injured woman. Mm-hmm. And then, of course... You're the super injured woman. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was so dumb. That's how injuries always are. Okay, this is the point where I just have to interject because we have not discussed this at all, but I can't let this moment pass without saying that uh, we have not mentioned that Caroline is a twin. And oh, I was um, about to bring Okay. Up. I was actually wanted to bring up that she's the second Grotto Pod guest to have appeared in People Magazine's 50 Most Beautiful People. Oh. And okay. I'm saying she doesn't respond with a stone face <laughs> stare like the last person. No, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Poe and I, yeah, you I know. Po, I know we went to Stanford, too. We That's were right. Look at you guys. Um, well, you're taking it much better than Poe. Yeah, I felt true. like he was – he, he was felt bad. like I was maybe not um, not – Showing the proper uh, respect for his bona fides, which I totally am. You can have both. You, you mean you both kit people <laughs> and be a kick-ass writer? Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I like feel like <laughs> that. I would. It's all just fun and games. You know, my twin. Yeah. It's really my twin sister was on exactly. With people, and then I was like, oh, she's got a twin, so that's cool. And you know, she okay. So, so you must while, be that beautiful too. There's actually a 51 people because she's your identical twin. Well, yes, I, there you and go. The awesome picture that I had to send to Bridget yesterday. All right, together. all right. Now, now we don't have to send. Okay, so. just gorgeous, ladies and gentlemen. I know. My God, it's so cute. I've seen that picture before. It's adorable. So, but here's the important okay, thing. So we have let me to just say, say that yes. I want to tell you what they're, they they are somehow dug up a picture from my past of me in a my fire all my fire turnouts and my twin sister in her bathing suit her and Baywatch Baywatch because she was on Baywatch during its heyday years <laughs> and we're on a beach for some odd reason. Like, why is that firefighter on the beach with her helmet on? But there is a story. Beach fires I mean, I could, I could have this wrong. So in the heyday of Baywatch, 
Caroline's sister was a Baywatch actress, actor, and um, they are identical. So didn't it happen, at least on one occasion, that you were doing a rescue at the beach and people thought it was filming? Do I have that wrong? I have that right. At a fire. At a fire, okay. Yeah, yeah please. We, we were at a fire, <laughs> and I didn't actually notice this, but I there was a big fire in the mission, and I ran in, and some civilian like stepped in front of my officer and said, is this a movie? <laughs> and it's like... People are screaming, smoke is pouring out. This is America for you people. And he said, no, what do you mean? And he said, well, I just saw the Baywatch girl run in there. And so, um, but that happened often. I mean, on the streets that. Right. I mean, it's understandable. How did that go over inside the firehouse? You know, that's, for that's some interesting. Time. That's an interesting yeah. thing, right? Because that's they're playing at rescue, but she's, <clears throat> but the Baywatch actresses were kind of sexualized. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that yeah, for sure. I mean, Baywatch was, but also Baywatch, by the way, was um, the real Baywatch. The lifeguards in, right. in L.A. are actually under the fire department. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. So it was this weird twin thing where yeah. I was the twin rescuing in real life, and she's the twin rescuing right. on TV. I mean, th- those things come up for us all the time. Yeah. yeah. I was thinking more though in a, in a locker room scenario. That's something guys would find to make fun of you for. Perhaps in their locker room, but they oh, did not. So they didn't. Well, I mean, you know. Well, she's not in the same locker room as them. No, but I'm thinking it would be. How would I put that? Not. I don't mean in a, in, a, in a sexist way, but like your nickname would be Baywatch. Oh God! I right. Like that kind of there stuff, were yeah. some great nicknames. I have to say. Yeah. Better um, than Crash. Not better than Crash. <laughs> Actually, they. I heard later. Uh, I love the guys I work with, by the way. It, very brave people. Yeah. Some of them so smart. So many of them with so many interests. So interesting. And also such a diverse. It was probably the most, you know, in San Francisco, we're so segregated, mm-hmm. white, black. But in the fire department, it was not like that. And so it was, It was. Um, at any rate, just work with so many of and. Amazing men, and they did uh, make fun of me a lot, and it was funny. Like I laughed so that's, hard. I guess um, what I meant to say in a locker room—that's a sign of acceptance. If your nickname's Baywatch, right? Oh, my nickname yeah. was not Baywatch. It was actually, and they did not say this to my face. Well, it was Doctor Doolittle was one because <laughs> you like animals. Well, I used to rescue animals. <laughs> like I'd come out with kittens in my coat. Or I'd always look for the food bowls when we'd be crawling around oh. and uh, come out with a dog. Or, um, <laughs> now so you they'd make viral. fun. <laughs> right, maybe. Uh, uh, they'd make fun of me for that because I was always looking for the to pull those animals that out. That is so cute. I love that. And I had some amazing animal experiences where I'd be in a fire and, you know, cats are cat, – grown cats run. I was going to say, how do you get them? You just use your little mental, like, I'm here to save you, with your little mental tel- tele- telepathy, and they know. And they know. I have plucked cats but they off don't. ledges. I plucked them in middle of, I remember being in a super smoky room, and I said to the owner, come back out to fill my uh, uh, my air bottle, and I said to the owner, do you have animals? Because I saw some feed bowls. She goes, I have a cat. I was like, why didn't you tell us earlier? Where would that cat be? And she said, you know, second floor to the right. So I run back up, oh crawl gosh. into the room, and there's a cat sitting on the windowsill. And I could see the silhouette, and I was just like, cat vibes, cat vibes. <laughs> I am here to save you. And we look scary. I mean, of we're course. huge. we got our mask on. We're breathing. Like, Astronauts yeah. looking right. down. Yeah. And that cat just let me scoop him up and put him in my coat. I have chills all over my whole body. <laughs> I do. Which I is am. rare in the grotto <laughs> It really is. Uh, what was your other nickname? Jane Wayne. <laughs> Jane Wayne. Yeah, I was really had a lot to prove. I mean, I was... Like Bruce Wayne? No, John no, Wayne. No, like, like John Wayne. I was just so it Both was are funny. Sw- it was it was like because I was way aggressive. I mean, I wouldn't <laughs> let anybody take my act. You know, you, yeah, act, you, and I want to be the first, and I'd be pushing this all the way. I had a lot to prove. Good. The truth is, is that okay? You know, I was. You know, I probably should have toned it down a little, but. If you tone it down a little, then you're a coward. And yeah, there yeah, weren't yeah. that many women in the fire department when yeah. I got in in 1989. So you had to be. But the honest truth is I worked for 10 years on the squad. And, you know, I, I made a lot of really solid awesome. friendships. And ultimately, if you talk to people, you know, they they laugh and they they they, they, respect, they respect the work I did. And that's. Do you ever think about whether you made it, you paved the way for other women to come in your wake? 
I mean, by, you know, we were sort of hacking that path with our little machetes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was an overgrown trail. So just by definition, there were people. I hope I inspired people. I I think you must have. I think I told you the story before that it was an entire squad of women firefighters who came to my house when my son was choking uh, in 1998 in the hate. So clearly. it, It couldn't have hurt to be Jane Wayne. I mean, seriously, if you're one of the first, like, oh, yeah, she was yeah. here and she kicked butt. It's better to be Jane, you know, sort of over-aggressive Jane Wayne than right. super nice, like, mm-hmm. okay. kick back, like, yeah. I'll, get, I'll make oh, cookies. Yeah. That happened. You know, people oh. would ask me when I would tell them oh, back then, you know, what do, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a firefighter. And there'd be the this. Cookies? No, there would honestly, they'd say, it would almost just come out of their mouth, like, so you go into fires? Nope. <laughs> That's what I said. I said, oh, no. No, no. I actually just – I do medical calls. Um, it's too dangerous for women to go in the fire. So the men do that, and I, we stay back. And they didn't know um, you were well, being what sarcastic. Did, what did people say? There would be this – they would get that I was – Yeah. Yeah, could this could not be true? Right. But they also some part of them were because like, yeah, sometimes it is sense. true. Like with the military forever, it was like that. It was right. bizarre. Wait, it didn't have to make sense. She told me she wasn't funny, and yet it seems like I she's know. being sarcastic. See, that's wry. Sure. I, th- I think of Caroline as wry. Um, I want to go back a little further. Right before Whoa. you appeared in our Grotto Pod, we were talking about mm. uh, the kind of upbringing that empowered you and both of your siblings really to just not. I don't, want, I don't want to say something as trite as, oh, face your fears, but, and, or not think about consequences, but more to be ready for consequences. It seems like all yeah. of you are go-getters, and all of you are ready to deal with whatever comes as a result of that. Can you talk a little bit about where that came from? And you did dedicate your book to your mother, the, what, how, what was it, The First Activist? Nice. Right. Um, I think being an identical twin is the first and foremost People compare you. Mm. Uh, it's all compare and contrast. They sort of pick the parts that they like and don't like. You have a measuring stick right next yeah, to you. Yeah, it, and so. it's at once super difficult and super inspiring. Right. Like my moral compass is my sister, my twin, and my brother. Wow. But really when I was young, it was my twin. Like we were just basically – we were competitive. Who could be better? We would work at we, – we were on the swim team and we would race extra. We would – sorry, practice extra. And this is sort of – we still laugh about this. And so we swam in a lake and we would do – we'd have our little swim team practice and then we'd practice after. The two of us, we'd swim across the lake and back. And then we would get mad at each other if one of them was doing a little bit of serpentine because that meant they were doing a little bit more workout. (laughs) Being a twin really, I think, sort of fosters this idea that there's just more possibility. I never never really thought about that idea with identical twins of being measured against each other. Like, well, I like Caroline better because, you know, she's this or, you know, I never really thought about that. Um, and I never thought about a swim team that practices in a lake in Connecticut because that sounds chilly to me. I'll bet – I'm just saying – I'll bet that your sister could be you swimming now. Oh, my sister yeah. just She's, did an 11-mile swim. Yeah. She is 11 so awesome. 11-mile swim. That's more than I crawled. That's, yeah, I that's more say. than a seven-and-a-half-mile crawl. Totally and we are 54. Love her. I know. Yeah. She's so awesome. And she's a triathlete, and I'm really into her. Oh, she's amazing. Tell her I said that. Yeah. Oh, so you like her better? Is that what you're saying? I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm saying that the kind of athlete she is, I admire very much. And you know what it is? It's dogged. Doggedness. Yeah. yeah. And was that the 11-mile swim is... Oh, was that the message coming from your parents? No, we didn't get that message. I, we didn't actually get any tangible message hmm. that I know, but um, except for that, uh, I don't know, we were nice kids and we knew that we were lucky kids. Like nobody mm-hmm. bullied us and we were, people liked us. It was all, it's all very simple, but somehow we felt that. I don't know. I can't. I couldn't really tell you. You got to speak to my mom. Where do you think your love of animals comes from? Because all three of you siblings to are really committed degrees. animal rights people. Well, that's genetic. My father, who was a very conservative Republican, Nixon lover, you know, 
hated the Kennedys, wouldn't call the airport that is located in New York. <laughs> called it Idlewild? Yes. <laughs> he told me he was picking me up there. I was like, I have no idea where where's Idlewild. I said, well, people call it Kennedy, but. Oh, that's so funny. So, but he loved animals and had many. And there's a story in our family um, about how he had this family of ducks, wild ducks that used to come every year to this pool that he had outside his little sort of gentleman farm in Massachusetts. And one morning he heard, saw the mother duck freaking out and he realized that the little ducklings were missing and he ran out and he scooped them all from the filter and he gave them mouth to beak resuscitation. Oh, oh man. He was like fish 60, you know, like, I, I wasn't there, but I can imagine him sort of kneeling there with little things of And did he save them? Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Maybe it could be genetic. Like that kind of empathy. Or taught. Yeah. That's true. Of course. That didn't come out of nowhere. That's the old nature and nurture argument, isn't it? Right there. Indeed it is. It's hard to know. I mean, my, we, we, I think my siblings, we admire each other. So we Mm -hmm. watch each other. You know, my brother, as you know, spent. We know, but they don't. Ah. Uh, Well, my brother is Jonathan Paul, the. The animal, the eco-terrorist, as some people call him, but really the animal. You know. You know, the you know how many times? The <laughs> eco-terrorist. <laughs> That's what the government called him. Were you related him. to the eco-terrorist? That's what the government called him. Okay, yeah. Uh, he was actually a member of the Animal Liberation Fund mm-hmm. for 20 years, which is an underground um, organization, sort of works on cell in cells and rescues animals from labs uh, all through the 80s and really the eight, 70s, 80s, and 90s. You know, freed medical or dogs from labs. There's a um, wild mustangs from corrals up in the west where mm-hmm. they're taking them and then euthanizing them or selling them to be sl- slaughtered. And uh, you know, uh, veal calves. He's rescued mink. He went undercover in a mink farm. I mean, so he's just a radical animal rights person. And the, uh, the feds have been following him for a long time, and uh, they finally uh, did get him, and on an arson charge because mm-hmm. he did burn down a horse slaughterhouse in 1997. That was the last action he ever did because he felt terrible about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a slaughterhouse in a place. Obviously, no horses were inside, but the town hated it. You could hear the screams of the horses, oh the blood running in the sewers. It was a bad, bad place. I mean, everybody. You didn't have to be an animal right. person mm-hmm. to hate that place. Right. But anyway, he did do four years for that. Uh, what does he think about your book? Oh, he hasn't seen it yet. Oh, it's so exciting. <laughs> I, I mean, he's someone who really gave his life to activism. And you said now that he is a volunteer firefighter. Yeah. So well, maybe he, you inspired him, too. Yeah, I think we just look, we go, yeah, we watch each That's other. That's awesome. I love yeah, that. Sort of- Let's circle back to the new book since you brought it up. So this is really the first, I mean, you could, you may think I'm wrong, but it feels like the first sort of um, directly activist book that you've written. Mm-hmm. And in it, again, the 90 seconds I just spent looking at it, you strike a really nice tone. So when you, uh, of change the world, not really fix the world. It does, I'm not really getting the world is broken out of it. I'm getting that these are some great things you can do to help the world. What sort of thought process went behind deciding the tone of the book? Well, I think, well, what happened was, is when Trump was elected, I think everybody here at the Grotto was really sort of pushed back on their heels and shocked. And I was shocked. I mean, basically less than 60% of eligible voters voted. Mm-hmm. And that kind of civic engagement Lack of civic engagement shocked me because when I grew up, you know, my mom was not an activist per se, and she'll tell you that. She was simply, as we were talking about, citizen. she was a citizen. They voted. And she <laughs> she also emigrated here from, right. from England, right. was highly class system, which she hated. So she really appreciated a lot about this country. When she became a citizen, she was so proud. And she told us over and over, you know, people died for the vote. That's the refrain. And she mm-hmm. also told me once, you can't come to Thanksgiving if you didn't vote. I mean, that's how serious it was wow. in our family. And so when people didn't vote this in 2016, I was kind of shocked and and depressed. And then I thought, oh, well, hold it. I'm a writer. And mm-hmm. we were all talking about this here at the mm-hmm. Grotto. I mean, you guys remember this. Yep. We're writers. This is our time. We should – we need to – this is – we step up now. And so I thought, well, what can I do? And 
And I thought, well, I'm I'm over adults. Look at them. They're not. They can't even bother to get <laughs> to the polls. <laughs> right. So Complacent. let's go back to kids. Like let's start early because civic engagement is something that I guess I was told from a very young age. You just do it. You you wash your tin foil. You don't just throw it away. You wash it. And you reuse it. You don't eat tuna because guess what? The dolphins are getting caught in nets. It's all very right. It's not huge stuff. It's just little stuff. Right. But it makes a difference and. So I figured talking to kids, nine-year-olds, mm-hmm. about civic engagement um, would be important and civil protest, and which a lot of adults have pushed back. Like, really? You should be letting kids be kids. I mean, teens and par- – so this was, by the way, finished before Parkland, as you know. Right. It was finished last right, February. Right, right, right. Right. And so Parkland came along, and teenagers are now doing this, which is amazing and inspiring. And, and they're, so, they're so smart. That is what has kind of – blown me away with just their ability to jujitsu social media and turn it on its heel. Uh, I feel like I could learn a lot from them, not just the passion, not just the engagement, all of which is fantastic, but just this very smart engagement. So how do you decide though? So, you know, I was, I was at some of those lunches where everyone was up in arms and there was a lot of palpable anger in the room. How do you decide not to use anger or scolding in writing this book? Is it just because of the audience or is it that more indicative of your approach to how to change the world? No, I'm really dark about the world, but I don't believe it helps. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, books go through many, many edits. I could probably, there was a lot of scolding in the first version. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've edited a lot of books where I'm like whining or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, being, uh, you know, super negative, which is not really my personality, but it comes out and you have to look and be very clear. Right. You thought to edit it out. You didn't look at it and go, yeah, this is the way to reach people. Yeah. I mean, I think social activism, first of all, is is a very it's social and so mm-hmm. it should be uh inspiring and and, and uh a community uh sort of a raising event situation and the, and the the tone for that is more fun right it's like here's a great opportunity yeah and it's i've always i think when people the kids i saw here that i know um tessa Mm-hmm. Uh, Cora. Who's in your book? Who's in my book? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were all psyched to do stuff. Mm-hmm. They weren't negative. They were right. psyched. Yeah. I mean, Tessa wanted to do a one person walkout. That right. was amazing. Right. right. She wanted to walk, get up out of her class and walk out and just herself in protest of, um, I think it was the immigration policies at the time. And, you know, people are saying, oh, the, you know, that's adults telling kids what to do. I don't I know don't about you guys, so. but when I was a kid, I was really scared of acid rain. Oh, I was too. And nukes. That was a big thing. I was afraid right. of nukes, yeah. My parents yeah. did not talk to me about that. No, we same. picked that up. So you need to give kids like an outlet for this stuff. So to those adults who think the kids should be kids, that's a really privileged point of view. Uh, and also, if you can scared. do that, great. And yeah, but they're picking it up and right. they're scared. And, and they want to be yeah. able to act. Right. So And they're, they are angry. I mean, I think some of them are angry Rightfully so, feeling like they've inherited something they didn't want and don't need, and you know they're not going to take it. We made a mess. Yeah, we're not the yeah. first. Yeah, that's the thing. But you know, I don't know. I am really hopeful when I look at my kids' high school, for example, which is private school in Marin, like very, very privileged. But how activist those kids are, I, I, I do hope. Like then they're going to go out into the world and be hopefully little seeds and little lights. Can I mix those metaphors in other places and meeting people from other places who are bringing what they have? I I just remember when I was in high school, there being no place for those feelings. I didn't feel there were. I remember getting something in the mail from Greenpeace and being like, what? What is this? Like, I didn't really know anything about it and filled out the card and got something back. But I didn't remember anything happening on my campus where I could connect with other real people. Well, yeah, was, maybe I mean, it was there. It was the early '80s. We it, were pretty tempted. It was the early then. '80s, and it was we Orange County, generation. California. But maybe it wasn't like that for you. Did you feel like there was places to be at, to? No, I mean, I do something still, about acid rain, for example. I wrote a letter to the president of the United States, which right, is not awesome. necessarily the most effective. But this is what my father said to do. Mm-hmm. Of course, right. it was Nixon at the time. Right. So <laughs> I, we got a form letter back. From I think. Nixon. Well, we realized that it wasn't Nixon because yeah. it sounded kind of formy. It was written to us, my sister and I, but it was a little bit 
And I write about that, too, in this here, that letter writing is definitely a very, very powerful thing to do. But you might get a form letter back. And maybe don't go right to the president, right. to the top. You know, it's a good thing to do sometimes, but maybe go to, you know, the CEO or even... Or something local. Yeah. And like you may have heard that they're, they've pushed back on um, sex ed in a nearby county of San Francisco because of activism at the school. So it can work. Not in the best way, as always. But. We are starting to run out of time, but I, so I don't want to finish without asking you, kind of getting up to speed. Now, you've really, as a writer, from where I sit as a writer, you've really explored a lot of different options. You know, you, you said earlier, oh, most of my books are memoir, but the way I see it, you've got a memoir, you've got a, no, a historic novel, which blows me away because mm-hmm. I can't imagine trying to write a historic novel, uh, a book about a cat. And then the last two, uh, more of an activist, more aimed at younger readers. So, of course, my next question is, what comes next? Oh, I don't, I don't know actually what's next. But let me. Do, I want to do sort of wind back on that and say, uh, I have had quite a few books that have not been published, mm-hmm. and I think that's an important part of my writing career mm. that people don't see. Talk about that a little bit because people don't generally come onto the ground upon and talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important. I was actually here. I had written East Wind Rain, which is a historical novel, and I um, realized that my strength was sort of less the imagination, which other, or I'd be writing mm. novel novels. So mm-hmm. I would take a true story and fictionalize it, and I loved it. I thought it was interesting, and I had. So then I I ended up writing two, sort of simultaneously. It took five years of my life here at the Grotto, and neither of them sold. Mm-hmm. And I was devastated. And I, <laughs> I mean, I sort of staggered around the halls crying. Now, weeping. where does that leave you? What's next after that? Well, you try to call yourself up. Luckily for me, I had written two books before this. Right. But if I was Jonathan Evison, for example, right. who had written zero books, as you said in your interview mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. the other day. Zero published books. Sorry, zero published and yeah. then wrote eight with just constant rejections. You know, luckily for me, the timing was – it could have been different. It could have been those two books initially and then that devastation. And then I never would have been a writer. But I had that glimmer of hope. I had the grotto. The grotto just kept telling me, you're a writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when I – then I crashed my plane to Ed. <laughs> it's like a not a – Like the world I, hates it's me. It's almost better. <laughs> I was sort of out of it on painkillers. And I thought, this is the book. This mm, book, of course, right? No, right. The book was going to be about oh injury and depression, oh. you know, because that's where I was. So I was like, dark. I'm writing this book. It's going to be amazing. This memoir, and <laughs> the truth is, not a lot of people. Um, Oliver Sacks had written something about it. He oh had, yeah, he had broken that, his leg. That's yeah. a crazy book. But a lot of people have not written about this. So yeah. to me, it was the most interesting thing in the world. So then I would tell the story to people still probably on painkillers and still <laughs> half unable to move. But I would say I have this book and it's going to be about the psychological effects of depression, uh, injury uh, and the resulting depression Lots and obsessions. Because I had obsessive thoughts while I was – that are just crazy. And but and then I'd say – and like for instance, my cat – who I loved and thought was so shy, ran away mm. while I was hurt. And I thought he was dead. And then he came back. And so I decided to follow him using GPS. And I went to an animal communicator and I went to a video. <laughs> and everybody was bored up until I said, <laughs> I began to stalk my cat. And then this light oh. in their eye. And I realized, so I wrote that proposal of injury and depression and it got rejected. But I saw that people had reacted mm-hmm. to that story within that story of the cat, of how I had like lost, I be- become a little nuts and obsessed and followed my cat. Do you think you have a, a, a sense for finding niches that no one else has filled yet? Be that books about cats or luging? I guess <laughs> I do. Yeah, and I think you have to be really. You know, people say I write for myself, and I don't write for myself. I write mm-hmm. to talk to other people, mm-hmm. so I wrote, write to have an interaction. So when Agreed. people's eyes lit up about this You're ridiculous like, thing I was doing to try to find You're out like, where my cat went, <laughs> then I realized I had a story. But wasn't it so much more fun to write about your cat than the depression and yeah, obsessive really. thoughts? And well, I actually I wrote a blog. Mm-hmm. Wendy said, oh, "Why don't you?" Well, because it was a blog to nobody. Oh, okay. 
it was in order to get my confidence back. Mm-hmm. She said, just yeah. write a blog, the daily blog about what's happening. So, of course, it was about stalking my cat, and it was called Where the Heck Does My Cat Go? And it was <laughs> to nobody. So I didn't tell anybody about it, and I wrote, and I, and one day I got a, a little response from someone in Iceland. Oh, my God. I know. Someone had found my blog, and I realized, oh, my God, it's not private. <laughs> I thought that... He had found it because he thought the title was interesting. And, in fact, people, I guess, at least this one person was reading it. That sort of broke the spell. Like, uh uh-oh, now I've got to. Yeah. Now it's real. But along the way, I got a lot of my confidence back because I thought it was hilarious what I was doing and ridiculous. And there is a special um, challenge faced by a writer. You had said earlier, oh, you know, it was easy. I was blessed in the beginning. But there's a special challenge for a writer who has a book that does well. And then another book that does well, and then nothing. You know, because you think, "Hey, first book to great, I'm set." Yeah, but I think we're never set. No, you're no. not set. Nobody's and that's, set. That's where. That's the. I mean, it, you know, Poe knows as he talks about kids. Like, if you praise a kid too much, when they suddenly don't, you know, or people who are naturally skilled mm-hmm. at things will give up when they suddenly don't do as good as they have been. They're up against bigger mm-hmm. competition. But I have actually. And I'm not trying to be coy here. I've never really been that naturally skilled. I've been sort of solidly mediocre and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's great. It's allowed me to have a very wide and varied mm-hmm. life. And and then I get to be dogged mm-hmm. and push through. And so thank goodness for and that's that. that's huge. Because five years of your life and two, yeah, reje- two yeah. rejected novels and two rejected proposals is Especially heartbreaking. Especially if you think you've gotten over the hump. Well, now you just jinxed me. Now, I mean, what it could no, but you have another book, book coming out. Yeah, yeah, you've already got a book about okay. tea coming out. Right, in true. October. Okay, okay. So you, you guys have two know. books coming out in one year, <laughs> but they're short. Oh, that was the other thing. Can oh. I just say the yeah, other lesson? I'm big on lessons learned. Like, yeah, tell me. I do not five years of my life to the publishing industry because fiction, of course, you write the whole thing and give it right, to them. Right, 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 right. And I written the whole thing and gave two books, and they were. And I was like, well, I'm not no longer spending years on a book. Yeah. I spend no months. Yeah. And yeah. I write it fast and I have a the structure in mind and I go. Oh, can we talk about how much time do we have? None. We're done. I have go not had to ask this question because I'm having a heart attack. So oh. you say you write it fast. So do you are you of the school of like <laughs> get down the first draft, just get oh. it through to the end? Or do you think Agonize you know, over that sentence. Well, no, not to that level, but to really like chapter by chapter, making sure you've got this solid foundation before you move on. I'm a little of both. I'm mm-hmm. so I fall in the middle. First of all, with a nonfiction, you write a proposal, so right. you already have a really good right. idea. That's why I tell people, look, it's the best. Do I not agree. skip that part. If you're like new, I don't care that you yeah. just had a bestseller and yeah. someone wants to give you, you yeah. know, a million dollars for your next book. So you all you have to do is give them a sentence. Don't do it mm-hmm. because you will not write that book. Mm. You must write a full proposal. I agree. And so I've already written a proposal. I have I, – a lot of people have characters in their head or voice. I start with structure in my head. Mm-hmm. Then I go to voice. Mm. And then I'm sort of off and running. And I like – I like it can't be just a mess. It's not a mess. Right. But it's not perfect. So I allow myself imperf- – I totally – it's as if I'm writing that blog to nobody again. Uh but I, I actually, there's a part of my mind that's like, yeah, you know, that's not nobody. But you know, it's sort of right. this middle ground. Right. I cannot I let find a the mess. I can't write a mess. But I do, you know, I do research obviously beforehand right. too. And usually, I have like a first sentence and a and a structure. Structure is key for me. Same with me. Structure is everything. To yeah, me. I don't think everything. people really downplay structure. Yeah, I agree. Um, so this is going to come out. On the 15th, giving people plenty of time Yay. to be at your launch, which takes place on May 19th. And the 15th, awesome. That's an auspicious day. That's when my book comes out. Oh, it actually comes out perfect. that day. Oh, that Thanks, you guys. May or may not have been are... on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> it's ideal. You guys are the best. I'm such a fan. I love the Grotto Pod, you guys. Awesome. Oh, I'm I learn so a glad. lot. I learn a lot. So I will not listen to my interview, unfortunately. I don't listen to my interviews. Oh, you might this time. Really? Okay. It's so casual. It'll just key up. I know. It's like a conversation. Um, we'll be talking over each other and whatever. And this is the part where you get to tell people your website and how they can get a hold of you and et cetera. Uh, CarolinePaul.com. Uh, Twitter is at Carol Writer. 
And Instagram is Caroline M. B. Paul. Caroline Michael Bravo Paul. And that's a little that fire training right there, Michael. Bravo. <laughs> that's pilot yeah. actually. Oh, pilot. pilot. But um <laughs> but I'm I'm trying to be better on social media. I'm not the best. I don't think I follow you on Instagram. I will remedy you know why? that immediately. I'm just on Instagram. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Well, you have a new follower in the next 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, everyone knows how to get hold of you, BQ, but tell them again. Okay. At B. Quintrest on Twitter and Instagram, BridgetQuinnAuthor.com for everything else. All right. Me, that Larry Rosen for Twitter and Instagram. Uh, is it good for the Jews? Is the website and other podcast looking for crossover listeners as always? Though I got busted last week because I never mentioned. I know I said because I listen to Is It Good for the Jews, and you know what? Larry never mentions the Grotto Pod. I mention of... you sometimes. I know, but it's not the same. Okay, well I'll mention it this time. Okay, We're recording thanks. on Saturday. All right, days. perfect. As for the Grotto Pod itself, you can find us on Twitter at the Grotto Pod, or you can email us at grottopod.com. and of course we do have a website, Grotto Pod. I know, but nobody ever sends us email. I just said you can email us at grottopod.com. Maybe that's why. It's grottopod oh. at gmail. Okay, but they should they should email us. And they should also know about our awesome partners. They should totally know about our partners. The San Francisco Public Library, with whom we are doing this great live podcast. You know about this? With Vanessa yes, Waugh on yeah. May 22nd. Okay, okay, awesome. And you should come. Everyone should come. Larry's going to bring donuts. Just no, kidding. No, too late um, for donuts. And also Babylon Salon, which is San Francisco's premier literary reading series. Next, uh, Babylon Salon is June 2nd at the Armory Inn. Armory, sorry. Babylon Salon. Can I just ask our people when you're on stage, do they go, oh my God, I, your voice sounds so familiar. It's so amazing to see you now. <laughs> Not yet, but we're hoping. Um, it's happened a couple of times. Um, but it actually happened to me that my niece's fiance asked me if I actually know Larry. And I was like, yes, I yes. do know Larry. <laughs> and it wasn't from this podcast. It was from the other one. And he was all psyched. Anyway, um, but if people want to know about Babylon Salon, they can go to babylonsalon.com. True. And let's thank our producers, Lee Kravitz, Beth Weingartner, and Lorianne Doyle. Music by? Sugar Town. Bridget has one more thing to say before we leave. And it's the most important thing, you guys. Read. Write. Just keep working. Mm-hmm.